You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. I'm Cota Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I discuss CSU's geothermal exchange in a crash that left a pedestrian seriously injured in Fort Collins. After that, Eliza Droder will update us on CSU's athletics, and then I speak to Stephen Berry from the Food Bank of Larimer County about Tour de Turkey. Then, Coda tells us about updates in the Astro World Music Festival story, and we hear about the long-gone summer in baseball in Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. After that, I give new information on COVID-19 statistics and vaccinations. To conclude today's show, Coda explains more updates on technology with information on Twitter and the FBI. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your campus and local news updates for the Rocky Mountain Review. In a statement posted by Colorado State University's Facilities Management, they explain that CSU has a strong commitment to energy efficiency and is headed in the direction of becoming a net-zero carbon emitter. To provide overall cost savings and reach that goal, CSU created the $20 million GeoX Exchange Project, which was recognized by ENR Mountain States for Project of the Year. The project replaced the 60-year-old pipes in Moby Arena and now uses a six-pipe geo-exchange system. The system relies on 80 miles worth of pipes that are placed under the intramural fields and utilizes natural energy. Due to COVID-19, the project was able to get a head start, which is why Moby is now heated and cooled by renewable energy. For more info on CSU's goal to use 100% renewable energy by 2030, visit source.colostate.edu. John Vulcans, a professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering, has led a CSU study about aerosol testing in light of COVID-19 and its effect on the performing arts. The study measured respiratory particles produced from people singing or playing instruments and monitor whether singing or playing an instrument produced more particles, and the study concluded that it did. The louder one talks or sings, the worse the emissions, and even age and gender affect how bad it gets. Compared to females and minors, an adult male emits more airborne particles on average. The study was called Reducing Bioaerosol Emission and Exposures in the Performing Arts, a Scientific Roadmap for a Safe Return from COVID-19. Volklands teamed with many partners, including Dan Goebel, who is the director of CSU's School of Music, Theater, and Dance. According to Ann Manning of CSU's Source News, Goebel stated that working with engineers has helped the performing arts understand how to re-implement their programming. For more information on CSU's performing arts, visit uca.colostate.edu. CSU's football team struggled against Air Force Falcons on Saturday as they unfortunately lost their last home game of the fall 2021 season. They will take on Hawaii next Saturday, though, at 9 p.m., so make sure to listen to Eliza Drodar later in the show for more updates on CSU sports. Now on to local news. This Saturday, a crash closed part of Prospect Road near Canvas Stadium after a pedestrian was seriously injured. The crash occurred about 7.30 p.m. after a pedestrian was walking in an area that was not a designated crosswalk. The pedestrian was sent to an area hospital and police are looking into whether they were under the influence of drugs or alcohol. If you have any information about the crash, 
you can contact Officer Ken Kosky at 970-416-2229. The City of Fort Collins and CSU are going through with their plan for the city to buy Hughes Stadium, CSU's old football stadium. It will be a $12.5 million purchase after a voter-initiated sale, which is why CSU and Fort Collins are doing an accelerated land sale. Fort Collins City Council will be discussing next steps in more detail at their November 23rd work session, according to J.C. Marmaduke of the Coloradoan. Before the sale is finalized, CSU is still going to be working with Cottonwood Land and Farms about developing affordable housing on the land, and both parties can back out of the sale if it hasn't been completed by the end of 2022. For more information, visit coloradoan.com. According to Katrina Labee of the Collegian, the Larimer County Department of Health and Environment will no longer be trying to implement the Vaccine Verified Facility and Event Program. This comes after a press release from the Larimer County Health Department, with the LCDHE stating that they would rather focus on new opportunities to fight the vaccine and increase access to monoclonal antibody treatments. After hundreds gathered in a protest on November 1st, Outraged about the Vaccine Verified Facility and Event Program, Larimer County also wants to change their focus to booster shots in vaccinating pediatric patients. For more information on vaccines and where to get one, visit Larimer.org. That's all for Tuesday's Campus and Local News. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, the team lost to Air Force 35-21 on Saturday. Their next match is this Saturday against Hawaii in Hawaii. In women's basketball, the team is starting off their season 2-0 with a win against UNC. Their matches this week are against Oral Roberts and University of Denver. In men's basketball, the team started their season 3-0 with wins against Arkansas Pine Bluff and Peru State. Their next match is against Bradley this Friday. In women's volleyball, the team won their final home game of the season against Fresno State, continuing their streak of being undefeated at home during conference play. Their next match is Thursday against Utah State. In cross country, both teams qualified for the NCAA Mountain Regional. The women placed 4th and the men placed ninth. They will be competing in the NCAA Championship in Florida this Saturday. In women's swim and dive, the team has gone undefeated going 13-0. They will be competing at the Phil Hansen Invite this weekend. 
If you are interested in student tickets for football, basketball, volleyball, and more, go to csuram.evenue.net. My name is Eliza Drotar. This has been your RMR Sports Report. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Berry from the Larimer County Food Bank to discuss this year's Tour de Turkey. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. With the Tour de Turkey coming up this Thursday, can you tell us a little bit about what Tour de Turkey is? Yes. So Tour de Turkey is the name of our holiday food drive this year and last year. We are naming it the Tour de Turkey because it is a Tour de Fat inspired event being sponsored and promoted by New Belgium Brewing. This is an opportunity for people to donate frozen turkeys to families in need in the community. We are also, because there is a national turkey shortage, accepting frozen hams and frozen whole chickens. And we have two locations this year that's going to be on Thursday, November the 18th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Old Kmart parking lot in Fort Collins and at the Orchards Shopping Center in Loveland. Are there any restrictions on who can participate in this event? As far as participation, no. If you are able to bring us a frozen turkey or, again, a frozen ham or a frozen whole chicken, you can show up and participate. The only restriction I would mention is that uh, through New Belgium sponsorship, the first 250 donors at each location will receive a coupon for New Belgium products, and you do have to be 21 years old to receive one of the coupons. All right. And then why is it especially important to participate in the Tour de Turkey this year? Our demand this year is higher than it has ever been since the food bank was established in 1984. Uh, Food security is up in Larimer County. Feeding America just released an estimate that since 2019, food insecurity in our county has risen by 27%. And this year, we are trying to raise 6,500 turkeys. And that's several thousand more than we have typically raised in years past. The other thing is that there is a national turkey shortage, and it is causing prices to go up. It, is, uh, we, it, it has led area grocers to impose restrictions on the number of turkeys that each family or individual can purchase. And that that for us reduces some large scale purchasing options. And it makes it more difficult for donors to grab a turkey for themselves and to donate to the food bank. So all of those things combined have made it uh, a very challenging year for us. So we are looking for as much support as we can possibly get. And then if someone can't make it this Thursday, but still want to contribute, how can they do that? They can donate directly to one of, the, one of our uh, donation locations. We have our fresh food share locations in Fort Collins. They're at 1301 Blue Spruce Drive. They are open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. to receive donations. You can also donate directly to our headquarters here in Wright Drive. That's at 5706 Wright Drive in Loveland, Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. And absolutely every bird counts. If you are unable to bring uh, a turkey or a frozen ham or a frozen whole chicken, uh, monetary donations also absolutely help support all of our operations 
and help uh, offset some of the purchasing that we will be doing on our end in case there is a shortfall in donations. But again, those purchasing options are limited. This is the one time of year that we ask for actual food donations over cash donations with a great amount of emphasis, I would say. All right. And then what should people know before bringing any food to the event? It is very important that the food be frozen solid. And this helps us ensure safe transportation and distribution to the uh, to the families in need who will be receiving the turkeys. And then can you just repeat where Torta Turkey is being held this year and how people can register for the event? Absolutely. So it's on November the 18th. And it is from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. in both Fort Collins and Loveland. In Fort Collins, it's going to be at the old Kmart parking lot. That's at 2535 South College Avenue. In Loveland, it's going to be at the Orchards Shopping Center at 261 East 29th Street. And there is no need to register. If you simply show up with a frozen turkey or, again, a frozen ham or a frozen whole chicken, if you can't find a turkey, that's all you need to do. All right. And then how does this event, along with other programs offered by the food bank, help residents support our neighbors who might be food insecure? And why does it matter? That's a good question. It matters in a lot of ways. We have a number of different programs to to help ensure that residents in our community don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. That said, there's a long way to go. This drive in particular is focused on making sure that those who may be food insecure in our community have the opportunity to have a wholesome, hearty holiday meal with their loved ones. And we believe that every single person in Larimer County deserves that opportunity, uh, regardless of whatever else is going on in their lives. They deserve a day to be able to enjoy a turkey or uh, a ham or a chicken together with their with their loved ones and they deserve uh all of the all of the the thanksgiving leftovers that many of us take for granted bringing turkey sandwiches to work and uh things of that nature so this is really about it's an additional effort to not only help feed people but give them a moment of respite All right. And then adding on to that, food insecurity is an issue that can often feel distance from a lot of people. How do you think that the past year's circumstances have really made food insecurity not only a bigger issue, but an issue more people are concerned about? Well, of course, due to the pandemic, we have seen a lot of people whose employment situations and financial situations have changed. And we have seen demand for charitable food go up. We have seen food insecurity rise and food insecurity is not something that can be easily identified by glancing at somebody. There are uh, a confluence of factors that can lead person to have difficulty feeding themselves or their family. And I think since the pandemic hit and this problem has become more widespread, it, it, it is more top of mind for a lot of people because maybe they're experiencing it themselves for the first time. Or maybe they have a neighbor or a friend or a family member who 
has a life that seems so solid and uh, almost untouchable from the outside and suddenly they're facing food insecurity. And it, it has created a, a new level of awareness about, about this problem and helped people to realize that it's not something that you should blame somebody for. It's not something that, that is helpful to uh, look down on somebody for. This is just a uh, th- th- there are many people who work here at the food bank who faced food insecurity at some point in their lives, including myself when I was a child. And it it it, uh, it affects a lot more people than you think. And um, I, I I think I'm, I'm encouraged by the amount that our community has rallied to to support uh, those who who are struggling. All right. And then is there anything else that you'd like to add today about Torta Turkey or the work that Larimer County Food Bank does in general? Uh, I would say that, uh, gosh, if you can just get the word out that we need turkeys, we are trying to raise 6,500 turkeys this year. This is far more than we've ever been asked to raise in years past. Uh, The requests that we have come in from a network of partner agencies that we work with called our Nourishing Network uh, that's 108 different agencies and schools. A lot of our turkey requests have come from the Pooter and Thompson school districts. And these are uh, uh, the families of students who attend those schools. I, I would just say, if, if there's a way that you can get your hands on a turkey or again, a frozen ham or a frozen whole chicken and bring those in, that, that is going to have a real meaningful impact on the well-being of our community. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Again, that was Stephen Berry from the Larimer County Food Bank. And we spoke about the tour to Turkey and food insecurity. Tour to Turkey happens this Thursday. And if you're just tuning in now and want to listen to this interview again, you can check it out at kcsufm.com slash news or by searching KCSU News on Spotify. And to learn more about tour to Turkey and the Food Bank of Larimer County, you can go to foodbanklarimer.org. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Kuta Babcock, and this is National News for Tuesday. The following story discusses the death of a child. KCSU encourages informed listening, and the story is about a minute to a minute and a half long for those who may want to turn their audio down during this story. Nine-year-old Ezra Blount, who was injured during a crowd surge at Astro World Music Festival, died as a result of his injuries Sunday. Doctors put Ezra into a medically induced coma following his injuries, and is the 10th and youngest person to die from injuries sustained during musician Travis Scott's set at Astroworld. 
Ben Crump, a high-profile attorney who previously represented Trayvon Martin's family and currently represents the family of George Floyd, will be representing Ezra's family and hundreds of others in suing the festival. In a news release sent out Sunday night, Crump said, quote, This should not have been the outcome of taking their son to a concert, which should have been a joyful celebration, end quote. Ezra's father, Tristan Blount, said in a GoFundMe post that Ezra was on his shoulders and the crowd surge crushed both of them. Blount lost consciousness and woke up to find Ezra was not with him and was severely injured in a nearby hospital. Scott and the event organizers are currently facing a criminal investigation as a result of the Astroworld deaths. Steve Bannon, former President Donald Trump's advisor, turned himself in on criminal contempt charges Monday. According to Rachel Treisman at National Public Radio, Bannon was indicted last week after defying a subpoena related to the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. Bannon live-streamed as he turned himself into the FBI's Washington field office, making remarks to his supporters. He said, quote, I don't want anybody to take their eye off the ball of what we do every day, end quote. One of his charges relates to failure to appear, while the second is for failing to produce documents after being subpoenaed. NPR says his charges each carry a minimum of a month in prison, along with fines ranging from $100 to $1,000. After a month of protest, Howard University students reached an agreement with the university's officials to address mold, flooding, and pest infestation in dorm buildings. Civil rights activists, including Reverend Jesse Jackson, Reverend William Barber II, and Martin Luther King III, all announced public support for the Howard University students. These students have been camping in tents to protest roach and mice infestation, as well as the other issues, all of which can lead to health problems. Student activists and their supporters say this is proof of disparities with which buildings are cared for, with less money being spent to take care of centuries-old buildings in historically black colleges and universities compared to predominantly white institutions. The following story goes over the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Rittenhouse murdered two people in a protest against the police department that paralyzed Jacob Black, a black man. The following story is about a minute long, and if listeners would like, they can turn it down during that time. The Kyle Rittenhouse murder trial began its closing statements Monday, the prosecutor denying Rittenhouse's claim of self-defense. According to a writer's team at the Associated Press, the prosecutor said that by bringing an AR-style weapon to a protest, Rittenhouse created a dangerous situation which put people on edge. Thomas Binger, the prosecutor for the trial, told jurors repeatedly that Rittenhouse testified in the court that he knew his first victim was unarmed, and that there was no evidence to prove Rittenhouse's previous claims that Joseph Rosenbaum, the first person killed by Rittenhouse, had previously tried to attack him. Binger also said that after Rittenhouse injured Rosenbaum, he continued firing despite the fact that a self-defense shot resulting in injury would have been enough for Rittenhouse to escape if he was being chased or threatened. The court is currently looking to charge Rittenhouse for two counts of murder, with the exact charges unclear as of Monday afternoon. Jurors are expected to make a decision on the case this week. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Cutta Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. In last week's episode, we did a final recap of the 2021 season after the Atlanta Braves defeated the Houston Astros in the World Series. And we talked about how incredible of a year this was, compared to those in the past. We then talked about the insanity of the record-breaking 2000 MLB season, which held the record for most home runs hit in a year, a record that wasn't broken for another 17 seasons. And, talking about the home run frenzy that occurred this year, it reminded me of a story that happened just two years prior of that incredible 2000 season. This is the story 
of the long gone summer. Let me set the scene for you. The year is 1998 and tensions between the players and the owners are still running pretty high after the 1994-1995 MLB strike that canceled 938 games and the entire 1994 postseason, including the World Series. Baseball, at the time, was still in a very dark place. At the beginning of the season, fans were still slowly coming back to the game after being pushed away for so long due to the strike. The addition of two brand new teams, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays and the Arizona Diamondbacks, helped the game reach brand new fan bases, but even then, something big needed to happen. Something so exciting and fun that it could bring in older, well frustrated fans, as well as a brand new generation of fans, inspiring them and making them into new fans. Two players, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, decided to put the burden on themselves. And boy, did it work. First, let me give you a little bit of a background on these guys. Sammy Sosa, the six-foot-tall, 165-pound right fielder from the Dominican Republic, started off his career with Texas before getting turned over to the White Sox. In his three-year stint with the two teams, Sosa recorded 235 hits and 29 home runs, averaging just under 10 home runs per year. In 1992, he would be traded to the Chicago Cubs, the stage where he would make a name for himself. Something kind of important to point out here is the home run titles in the six years leading up to the long gone summer. In 1992, Sosa had eight home runs. In 1993, 33 home runs. From 1994 to 1997, he had 25, 36, and 40, as well as another 36 home run season to put his career total at 207, a pretty modest number for the 28-year-old outfielder. But here's the thing. That's nine years of his career, and going into his 10th year, he had 1,035 hits and only 207 home runs. When it came to 1998, however, Sosa became just a completely different person, a different hitter altogether. In 1998, at the age of 29, Sosa had one of his best years yet, recording 66 home runs in a single season, clubbing a career-high 198 hits, as well as leading the league's in runs with 134, and RBIs with 158. His 416 total bases led the league as well, all of this coming with a league-leading 171 strikeouts, a total that would be matched by himself actually the year later. And actually the year before 1998, 1997, he had 174 strikeouts. So, in other words... Sosa was swinging, and swinging hard, at everything. He either got a hard base hit, he hit a home run, or he struck out. Nothing really in between. 
The other side of this home run race came in the form of Mark McGuire, the then 34-year-old Pomona, California product. McGuire was originally drafted to the Montreal Expos in the 8th round of the 1981 MLB Amateur Draft out of his high school, Damien High School. But he decided to not go with that draft and try his luck a few years later after deciding to go to the University of Southern California. After just three years in college, McGuire was drafted by the Oakland Athletics in the first round as the 10th overall pick. And from there, he became a standout player. After only playing 18 games in 1986, his rookie contract stayed intact for his 1987 season at the age of 23, where he played 151 games. In that 151 games, he recorded 161 hits, the highest number he'd hit in his entire career, as well as 49 home runs and 118 RBIs. The 49 home runs was enough to lead the league, as well as his incredible 618 slugging percentage. Mark McGuire would go on to win Rookie of the Year pretty easily, as you can imagine, and his first of 12 All-Star Game appearances. So, already, the Californian first baseman was making a name for himself as a serious offensive power threat. From 1988 to 1992, McGuire would continue to send baseballs flying out of the park, recording 168 home runs in the five-year span, and another 601 hits to the total as well. Various foot injuries plagued the young star in 1993 and 1994, limiting him to just 74 games and 18 home runs, nine of which came in each season. But by 1995, he was back and better than ever. And at the age of 31, McGuire would swat 39 home runs and another 52 in the 1996 season, which led the league at the time. Just a year later, he hit 58 more home runs as the Athletics decided to trade him away to the National League and the St. Louis Cardinals. And it was with the Cardinals that McGuire was locked into this home run to home run battle in 1998, the year he would hit 70 home runs, a record that wouldn't be beaten until 2001 when Barry Bonds hit 73. Both of these incredible players at the time had one goal, and one goal only, to completely shatter the single-season home run record set by Roger Maris all the way back in 1961 when he slugged 61 home runs at the age of 26, which, at the time, broke Babe Ruth's all-time record, which sat at 60 home runs that he hit during the 1927 season. The home run hitting frenzy started in April for Sosa when he hit six home runs in 23 days, but between May 3rd and July 31st, that total jumped from seven home runs to 42 home runs, faster than you can say Roger Maris. Sosa slugged home run number 62 on September 13th, 1998 off of Milwaukee pitcher Eric Plunk, which was, by the way, Sosa's second home run of the game. That home run would have broken Rodgers' record, 
if Maguire hadn't done it five days before. And that just goes to show you how close this home run battle was the entire time. I mean, in the same time span that Sosa hit 35 home runs, Maguire hit 33 home runs. On September 16th, 1998, a 434-foot shot off the bat of Sosa tied the home run lead with Maguire at 63 home runs. So they had both broken the record, but they're in early September, so they're still pushing to see how far it could go. Sosa hit home run number 64 and 65 against the Milwaukee pitching staff on September 23rd and hit his final home run of the season, number 66, on September 25th. Maguire, on the other hand, would hit number 64 and 65 just a day apart before hitting number 66 on September 25th as well. But when Sosa went cold on the last three days of the season, Maguire did the opposite. He was as hot as could be. Maguire would have back-to-back days with two home runs in each, putting his final home run total and the record that was only held for another couple years at 70 home runs in a season. I mean, that's some pretty incredible stuff. And I think one of the best parts about all of this is the fact that these two guys, when all this was going on, were on two teams that hated each other in the Cubs and the Cardinals. The long-standing rivalry, I feel, amplified this home run race, as it also had a big part to play in the final standings between these two teams. I mean, they're in the same division after all. Although the Cubs' Sammy Sosa lost out on the home run record, he was the one that got to face off against the Atlanta Braves in the NLDS. The 83-79 and Cardinals, on the other hand, would miss out by six and a half games. But regardless, I think it's safe to say that both of these players, Sosa and McGuire, played a huge role in getting their team to those winning records, while also having a bit of fun themselves. The Cubs would end up getting swept in the NLDS anyway, but, you know, what a way to finish off that incredible season. But let me put into perspective just the sheer amount of home runs that these two hit. Maguire finished with 70, Sosa finished with 66, and the next closest to them was Ken Griffey Jr., who had 56, followed by Greg Vaughn, who had 50, but everyone else, guys like Albert Bell, Jose Canseco, Vinny Castilla, and on, had 49 or less. I mean, even Barry Bonds, who was the eventual record holder, only had 37 home runs that year. I mean, these guys were really on a tear. And it was exactly what the doctor ordered. I mean, fans everywhere started coming back to the MLB. You had your old and previously frustrated fans that seemed to just kind of forget about the woes of the league from the past few years, as well as fans that were just watching baseball for the first time. I mean, all of them were just attracted to the sport again just because of the show that these two put on. Now, I've heard stories from so many people talking about coming home and flipping on the TV or flipping through a newspaper to try and see who got a home run last night, who was in the lead for the record. I mean, it seemed at the time that 
no one really cared about much else other than the home run lead. The fireworks that these two and so many more around the league put on ignited the passion and imagination of fans everywhere, young and old. But I think that there's something that I should point out here that might explain how these players, who hadn't even broken 60 home runs in a season before, got to this point. I mean, I think it's unfortunately safe to say that PEDs had a huge part in it. I mean, Mark McGuire has already admitted to it, as he received the drugs from his brother, Jay, who is a bodybuilder. Sosa, on the other hand, has not admitted to it, still keeping his feet firmly planted, saying that it was just a good year for hitting. Now, although he continues to deny it to this day, Sosa's career has been, and unfortunately probably forever will be, linked with steroids, whether he admits it or not. Earlier in the episode, I gave you the totals of the home runs that these two players hit before 1998, and that was on purpose. I mean, McGuire breaking the record didn't really seem that far out of place, but even he hadn't hit more than 58 home runs in a single season. Not only that, but when McGuire hit 70, he was 34, and already 13 seasons into his career. Like, he wasn't just some young phenom, like he was a pretty old guy as far as baseball is concerned. Sosa, on the other hand, only hit a high of 40 home runs before he hit 66, with pretty much every other season being well below that total. But you see, at the time, no one cared. I mean, looking back, I think a lot of fans, both new and old, and well, probably the teams and the owners, I mean, they probably knew. There's no way that they didn't. But, you see, it didn't matter. Baseball was in such a bad place at that point that just something big like this needed to happen, especially if it had to do with just the survival of baseball and the MLB just in general. It's very possible that the MLB were very aware of this situation and the cheating that was going on between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. But why would you stop them? I mean, why would you stop these two when they're literally making the game of baseball way more popular and restoring the faith in the sport that many had lost because of a few years ago? And I mean, on top of that, whether they cheated or not, that summer gave birth to just a whole new generation of passionate baseball fans that lasted well beyond that season. And hopefully they pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. So in next week's episode, we're going to be talking about a few professional teams that were recognized by the MLB that only played one, maybe two seasons before completely changing their brand and becoming the teams that we know today. You're listening to KCSU Fort Collins at 90.5 FM. Tune in to... What's up, guys? It's Hannah Conda. Listen to my show 1 3 p.m. on Tuesdays.
And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Koda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports a cumulative total of over 4,200 cases of COVID-19 since May of 2020. On-campus staff, students, and faculty report a vaccination rate of just over 90%, which reflects that the vast majority of the CSU community received at least one dose of a vaccine. Larimer County reports nearly 43,800 cases of COVID-19, along with 355 deaths. 97 COVID-19 patients received treatment in area hospitals, with ICU utilization rates at 107%. Larimer County reports a seven-day case rate of over 375 per 100,000 residents. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask or surgical disposable mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The state of Colorado reports nearly 790,000 cases of COVID-19, along with almost 9,000 deaths in the state. 4 million people have been tested for COVID-19 in the state, and over 8.2 million total vaccines have been administered. 3.6 million Coloradans are fully immunized against the virus that causes COVID-19. Nationally, the CDC reports almost 47 million cases of COVID-19 and over 760,000 deaths. Nearly 80% of people ages 12 and older in the U.S. received at least one dose of vaccine, but community transmission of COVID-19 remains high across the nation. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for tech news. I'm Koda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. The Federal Bureau of Investigation confirmed this weekend that hackers used FBI accounts to send out spam emails. According to Catherine Whalen at National Public Radio, the Bureau said that those hackers did not access any personal information while they were on their network. The fake emails came from an email address from ic.fbi.gov, according to an FBI statement. Sunday, the FBI said that the law enforcement enterprise portal, known as Leap, was accessed in what the Bureau called a software misconfiguration. Leap is typically used to communicate with local law enforcement when when investigations require FBI support. The Bureau says that the agency is no longer impacted by the breach and that the actors did not access any important information. Workers in a Staten Island, New York, Amazon warehouse withdrew their petition to hold a union vote. According to Anne Dianazencio at the Associated Press, the National Labor Relations Board confirmed that the warehouse pulled back from making a decision on unionizing just two weeks before a hearing on union interest was to be held among the warehouse workers. Over 2,000 workers signed union support cards by late October from the warehouse, 
And this is the second union effort from Amazon workers in the past year. In an email statement, Amazon spokesperson Kelly Nantel said of the petition withdrawal, quote, Our focus remains on listening directly to our employees and continuously improving on their behalf, end quote. Twitter announced that a new version of its application programming interface will become the default for developers of third-party apps like Tweetbot and Fenix. According to Mitchell Clark at The Verge, this change to API v2 is expected to support third-party clients better. In a Twitter blog post, the company said, quote, We want you, our developer community, to drive the future of innovation on Twitter, end quote. Third-party apps often face barriers when working with Twitter to develop their apps, and API v2 provides a more friendly approach to creating third-party Twitter clients. Amir Shavat, the company's developer platform lead, said Twitter wants to give developers the chance to compete with Twitter and handle issues that Twitter itself would not prioritize on its own. That's all for Tech News Highlights. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Right after this break, we'll be hearing from the Mastercast podcast. recommendation this week is surprisingly brilliant. This podcast is about science history, covering the hidden stories and unsung heroes of some of the greatest accomplishments of science. For iHeartRadio and Seeker, passionate hosts and writers Marion Hunsberger and Greg Foote take turns telling each other the origins of fascinating scientific ideas from all disciplines of science in a way that not only is easy to understand, but jaw-droppingly entertaining. You don't have to have a background in science or have gotten top marks in school to enjoy the topics. The details in each hour-long episode is made greater by an esteemed guest from the field who helps them tell the story lost to history books. It's so nice to hear a show coming from people who genuinely love science and have a dynamic that makes them sound like they grew up as friends. Apple Podcasts has an average star of 4.5, 361 ratings, and 80 written reviews. The 2020 show has two seasons so far, a total of 30 episodes, and Hunsberger has just confirmed via Twitter the show's third season is in the works. When releasing, episodes usually come out Fridays. The most popular episodes, according to Autel, are The Puzzle Beneath Your Feet and The Electronic Gear. I really love The Electronic Gear episode as well. As a huge fan of audio, I thought it was really fascinating to hear about implants and the preferred terms and language associated with them. I think it's really helpful to making the medium of podcasting more accessible. Music is subtle and comes in and out at important parts of the story. The commercial amount is average. I can't express how much I've enjoyed the show and I can't wait for season and three to come out. If you've been a fan of Marion's YouTube or consider yourself a science nerd in general, this podcast is a must listen. Similar pods include Shortwave, Side Door, 99% Invisible, and Ologies. 
The next recommendation is No Strings Attached. It's April 5th, 2015, and Vicky Sillers, an army captain, loving wife, and mother, goes to jump out of an airplane like she has so many times before. The experienced free fall instructor has completed 2,600 jumps safely, but on this Easter Sunday, her parachutes have been tampered with, causing them to fail. Will she survive the 4,000-foot fall? What looks like an accident leads detectives to uncover a story of infidelity, debt, and manipulation when Siller's picture-perfect life turns out to not be what it seems. From ITV News, hosted by Rob Murphy, the 2020 podcast has 4.7 stars. From Apple Podcasts, 15 ratings, and only two written reviews. The Hidden Gem is complete, with eight episodes total that average about 32 minutes in length. Each contains interviews from those involved with the case, as well as insight into how the British legal system differs from others. Extra video content can be found on their website. No commercials and minimal music. Trigger warnings for abuse and violence. Similar pods include Conning the Con, The Sure Thing, and Culpable. I Spy is the next recommendation. This podcast is an amazing inside peek into the world of espionage and intelligent agencies. It's produced by Foreign Policy, the makers of the news magazine and website by the same name. Each half-hour-long, well-produced episode is a first-person account of a specific event they were involved in, and the subject is something completely original. What other podcast has behind-the-scenes access to secret missions? It's hosted by Margot Martindale, who plays a very minimal role, only doing the intro and outro. The interview questions seem to be edited out, resulting in the guest telling a seamless, detailed story, much like what is heard in This Is Actually Happening. The tales come from not only American agents, but spies from other intelligence programs. No matter how you feel about some of the things done by different governments, it's cool to see how the inside functions. It's suspenseful but not true crime. The show will have you sitting in your car to finish an episode and frustrated anytime someone interrupts you. Gripping and binge-worthy, the stories cover a wide range of perspectives, such as politics and history, while being real-life action thrillers. So far, there are 22 episodes from three seasons, and no word if we can expect a fourth. Apple Podcasts has 4.7 out of 5 stars, 2,443 ratings, and 216 written reviews. My favorite episodes have been The Sleeper Agent and The Counter Spy. Altel's most popular listed episodes are The Man with the Antidote, and the narc part one. The music I don't find bothersome, but some do. Trigger warnings for violence. Similar pods include Wind of Change and Spy Affair. LeVar Burton Reads is the next recommendation. As a kid, I was a loyal reading Rainbow fan. I never missed it. And now I can continue curling up and enjoying more of LeVar Burton in this podcast done with Stitcher. The show has 4.9 out of 5 stars for a reason. Every Tuesday, solo host Burton, with the help of his team who he never fails to credit, reads one of his favorite fictional stories from a diverse selection of contemporary and classic writers. The support and inclusiveness is a goal to emulate. Production is excellent across the board, with word and soundscaping expertly done. Equal parts soothing and familiar, Burton's talented reading voice is another great staple of the show. It's perfect for every character regardless of which emotion is being conveyed, and the selection of stories always challenges you to think critically. Just a warning for those who are looking for happy ever after endings. The stories read are usually spotlighting science fiction, speculative fiction, and fantasy, 
which sometimes results in suspenseful, unresolved conclusions. Despite this, one similarity between all the tales is that they are brilliant. So much so that I listen to them twice, once as I go to sleep and then again the next morning to hear what I missed. They're too good to be only for sleep. Watch out for the show notes about content, which he reminds listeners of every episode. They're swearing and one story I've heard did include a slur, but again, it's all in the show notes and a part of the red story. At the end of every story, Burton gives his own opinions about the reading in a short debrief that wraps everything up nicely. 132 episodes so far, about 45 minutes on average, with new episodes coming out weekly on Tuesdays. My favorite episodes have been Dark Places on the Map by Anjali Sachdeva and Jump by Cadwell Turnbull. Outtales most popular are listed as Live in DC, A Dark Night by Edward P. Jones, and Malto by Samuel Marzoli. The commercial amount is average but never wakes me up. This podcast is for anyone who considers themselves a lover of books or fantastic narration. Similar pods include Fictional, Book Cheat, and Phoebe Reads a Mystery. The next podcast recommendation is Convicted Across Borders. This 2021 five-part series is about some of the 3,000 Americans in prison abroad every year. This show is about showing you how a person doing what they think is living a normal life can cause them to be imprisoned by a legal system they know nothing about, in a language they don't speak, and with no one to help them. All of this while being told they'll never be able to leave. It's very similar to Locked Up Abroad, however it features more wrongfully convicted stories. Produced by LA Times Studio and Treefort Media, it's funded by Focus Features and was made to accompany their new Tom McCarthy, Matt Damon film, Stillwater. The same production Amanda Knox spoke out about fictionalizing her murder trial in Italy. A few promos for the movie play throughout the series but aren't longer or more bothersome than regular commercials. I don't mean to scare you away with disclosing the financial side of the podcast. I hope you can tell by me recommending it that I really enjoyed it. It's hosted by famed lawyer and best-selling author Marcia Clark, who was the lead prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. I didn't like Clark's previous pod, The First 48, but as mentioned, this one is done really well. A big part of that comes from how the stories are told in the first person from the men and women who live these nightmares. Additional guests are sometimes family, international affairs specialists, and lawyers who helped with the case. The stories of suffering, heartbreak from everyone involved are upsetting but also inspiring. It has 4.9 stars, 60 ratings, and 8 written reviews on Apple Podcasts. Episodes were 33 minutes long on average. The show doesn't have the 20 required episodes for Altel to do their most popular calculations, but my favorites were Nightmare Nicaragua and Villain of Venezuela. Music wasn't disruptive, and the show has the average commercial amount. Trigger warnings for wrongful conviction and hopelessness. Similar pods include The World Beneath, Kremlin File, and Heist with Michael Caine. The Offensive is the next podcast recommendation. This award-winning show by Stack is a mockumentary sports podcast that follows the fictitious premier football club, Ashwood City, through the eyes of the CEO, sports director, and director of communications, with some help from a narrator. The show is absolutely hilarious, but not for kids. I wasn't sure how a mockumentary would go on just audio, because it seems like so much of my favorite shows depend heavily on visual cues, but I can confirm this pod nails it. 
It has become what I put on when I'm having a really bad day. I actually try not to binge it too quickly because I didn't want to run out of episodes, and that's the first time I've ever done that for any podcast. I kept thinking the show would fall off, but with 121 episodes and new episodes coming out every Monday, it doesn't look like the comedy is waning anytime soon. One of the best parts about the show is if you're a fan of football, it's accurate. But if you aren't, you're in luck as well. Because the rapid fire snark is mostly about the relationships between the main characters that anyone can enjoy. There's so much backstabbing, scheming, and stupidity. It's very much a combination of the thick of it and the league. Writers of the show credit weekly happenings in real life football as inspiration for some of the crazy calamities in the pod. The show has 4.8 out of 5 stars, 540 ratings, and 8 written reviews. As of August 2021, the show has reached over a million downloads, making it one of the most popular fiction comedy podcasts. The content is exceptional and the voice talent is as well, with over 80 actors having parts throughout the show. Sometimes they're even recording in the same room. The show does have a pretty creative Twitter account that is managed in character with live tweets from games, air quotes there, being made. Fans of the podcast respond in kind by tweeting back abuse. There's also a very well-done merch store with home and away shirts as well as mugs, hats, pop sockets, and a few other items. Personally, I'm waiting on the scarf. Commercials start off really rare and then increase to average over time. The music is really on theme and usually comes in after a cold open. I will note, along with the previous mention of profanity, there is a fire alarm that sounds in one of the earliest episodes. I don't think it's excessive, but I wanted to mention it. Similar pods include A Very Fatal Murder, Dead Authors Podcast, and Hello from the Magic Tavern. The last recommendation this week is Word of the Day. This podcast by Merriam-Webster is an audio version of their Word of the Day email newsletter, written to educate listeners on a fresh word every day. It covers the words, etymology, and other fun facts about it. I really enjoy cueing a few at the beginning of my day's feed. All of the context for each word makes them really easy to remember. Even if I know the word, I can still learn something new about it. It might be one of the most useful podcasts I listen to. Hosted by Peter Skolowski, the show is 4.4 out of 5 stars and has 933 ratings. Apple Podcasts only seems to have the latest 10 episodes, but through art19.com, I was able to find every episode back to the show's original air date in October of 2006. Since then, the show has posted a word of the day every single day, including holidays, for 5,389 three-minute-long episodes total. The pod has had some technical issues in the distant past that have since been cleared up, including download issues, mistitled episodes, and even uneven volume for the intro and ads. However, I will note the pod is 15 years old, so some growing pains are to be expected. Ads seem to be the chief complaint amongst listeners, but I think they're fine, especially if you only listen to one or two a day. Similar pods include Spectacular Vernacular, The Illusionist, and Away With Words. Today we saw warm and partly cloudy skies with a high of 68 and a low of 26, with winds reaching 15 miles per hour. Wednesday, you can expect a pretty dramatic temperature drop to a high of 42 degrees with a low of 17, with winds at 9 miles per hour. Thursday will warm up a bit to a high of 46 and a low of 31 with low wind speeds 
And for Friday, you'll have to tune in from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review on Thursday. Or check us out on Spotify before or after the show by searching KCSU News. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Eric, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. 